Hello, everybody. Adam Parks here with another episode of Receivables Roundtable. Today, I am here with industry legend and my good friend, Mr. Joe Adams, who is the CEO of Hampton Prior Group and has been a staple in the compliance space across this industry. Uh, well, longer than I've been in the space. How are you doing today, Joe? <laughs> doing fine, my friend. How are you? I cannot complain. It's another day here in paradise. I know you're coming to us live from Africa today, which I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and have a chat with me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So for anybody who's watching who's not familiar with you, could you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and how you got to the seat that you're in today? Wow. Okay. Um, as Will Smith said, born and raised in West Philadelphia. Um, that, that's where I started at. Uh, in the early 80s, uh, when I got out of the military, I answered an ad for management trainee that was placed by a company called FCA, which at the time was the largest collection agency in the world. They were based out of Canada, and uh, they had offices all over the place. They had uh, two in Germany, one in the UK, and a number of offices in the U.S., well, I answered the ad, went to work at their Devon um, office, which was the U.S. headquarters, only to find out that their idea of a management trainee was a bill collector. So I said, OK, it's a chance to learn something new. So I stayed at FCA, uh, and this is the early 80s, 82, 83. I, I stayed at FCA for about a year and a half, and then uh, I had the opportunity to move over to ACB which was a, a prime competitor. And, you know, for a lot of the younger people who don't remember, ACB was a powerhouse in the 80s and 90s. They were headquartered out in Phoenix. So I moved to ACB, um, went over, got promoted to collection supervisor, stayed there for a couple of years. And then there was an opportunity um, for, again, a manager trainee um, at a bank in uh, Wilmington, Delaware, that I had never heard of. It was called M-Bank. Um, they said that the, the bank was so small, they couldn't afford a real name, just the letter M. So I, I went to work <laughs> there. I started um, as a bill collector. Within eight months, I, thanks to the help of a mentor who became the senior vice president um, of the bank, his name is Jan Nanning, and he is still a mentor and consulting to Hampton Prior Group. Um, I was promoted to vendor manager. And from that point, I did that job moving all the way up to um, senior vice president. I stayed there 16 and a half years. So, you know, I watched that bank grow. M Bank became Lomas Bank USA, which morphed into First USA Bank um, after a management buyout. And after 16 and a half years, I left. I went down to become um, a senior vice president with a collection agency called Asset Management Outsourcing in Georgia. And I worked down there with some great uh, people who are still in the industry. Dusty Weitzel um, was a contemporary of mine down there, Harold Wickline. And we did the whole AMO thing. And when I left, um, we I joined Hampton Prior Group that had been around. Uh, a couple of years prior to me, it was started by my uncle, um, and I joined that group, and I did that. And one of the contracts I was able to land was WAMU mm -hmm. right before they were purchased by Citigroup. 
So as I'm doing that contract and I'm talking to um, the executive vice president of Citigroup, um, and it's really City Financial in there. They were doing all the mortgage, uh, both prime and subprime. This is right after the associates merger um, that happened in the early 2000s. Um, instead of him just bringing me on as a consultant, he said, I want to hire you to be my senior vice president of recovery. So I said, okay. Uh, never had any mortgage experience, but I had management experience. So I did that for a few years. Um, and, and then after that, um, you know, uh, I got tired of corporate America, came back to Hampton prior, and uh, I've basically been here for, oh, gosh, almost 15 years now. Wow. And so, you know, that's a that um, gives you a, a really wide range of experiences, right? Vendor management, direct to collections, managing it from a banking perspective. Like it's a lot of different things. So I know compliance has kind of become your passion over at Hampton Prior Group. Can you tell everybody <clears throat> a little bit about Hampton Prior and what you guys do there? Okay, the Hampton Prior Group is a consultancy. And um, as a consultancy, we're always trying to um, be current for our clients. Um, HPG started where our primary emphasis was on operational assistance. Mm -hmm. and, and when the group started and when I joined the group, the majority of what we did was go to agencies and help agencies improve their operations, train their managers, mm -hmm. train their staffs, look over their policies and procedures, uh, do QA and those things. So that was um, the, the beginning of what I did at HPG and what HPG was doing. Back when um, SAS 70 um, was very, very hot, and it came in at the time where I was the chief operating officer uh, at an organization that a mutual friend of ours, Mike Colby, worked at called Collins Financial, SAS 70 came in, and it was all about complying with control activities. Mm -hmm. So we kind of morphed into that um and we were in sas 70 and we went out to the very first aca seminar they did on that and from that seminar we got three clients right away mm -hmm. um so we started doing compliance from a control activities thing and then more and more of our clients were asking us to take a heavier role in their internal compliance uh, operations to the point where I'm the chief compliance officer for four of them right now. So we just kind of morphed into that. So now what we do, um, in addition to training, we do a lot of compliance from a QA standpoint, from a policies and procedure standpoint, um, dealing with the CFPB and state regulatory agencies. Uh, we have a lot of experience of partnering with law firms who want subject matter experts to come in and assist them in defending one of their clients that has come on to, you know, uh, being approached by the CFPB or state regulatory thing. Mm -hmm. So what it broke up domestically in the U.S. is that a good 80% of our business in the U.S. is compliance or compliance related, whether it be SOC examinations with our um, CPA partners, or just out and out compliance through QAs, policy and the procedures we do. What we've done over uh, in Africa is we've kind of morphed back to our origins 
And we're still getting into the operational assistance, the training, the collections assistance. So, you know, it's kind of come pretty much full circle um, with the you know inauguration of Hampton Pride Group International. So that's a an, an interesting segue here, Joe. So, you know, obviously you've been entrenched in the U.S. marketplace for a long time. And over the last year or so, you've kind of made this global move, right? You went from, you know, very focused on the United States to focusing on some blue sky opportunity that is starting to emerge in the African markets, specifically that kind of the eastern side of, mm-hmm. of the continent. So tell everybody a little bit about like what that transition has been like for you and what it is that you're doing over there in, in Africa. Well, the, the first thing I'll say when it comes to international, when I was a city group, I did a number of peer reviews for city. And these peer reviews took me to Turkey, to Spain and, and to other countries just to review their operations. When I decided to move to Nairobi, um, you know, I looked around, I said, you know, things are going well in the U.S., but there was such a, an open landscape for collections and trying to uniform or or unify collections, bringing some real workflow strategy to it, um, basically to help people who have been doing things the same way for generations to be on the cutting edge of doing something different. So I had meetings with um, uh, some of the big banks here, um, some of the big credit unions, which they call SACOs, both in Nairobi, I'm sorry, both in Nairobi, Kenya, and also in various cities in Uganda. And, you know, it, it seems like, Adam, you know, that the things that we take for granted as business principle 101 become like manna from heaven over here because they're not used to it. So we, we brought that over. We did some training with some financial institutions. They loved it. Um, we're working with them to try to meld um, best business practice with cultural implications because that becomes always big over here. And, and that's what we're working on. Um, when I moved over here, I basically said I need something um, to occupy my time prior to 3 p.m. local time when it becomes 8 a.m. on the East Coast. And, and, and this is uh, my new passion and it's working out well. So it sounds like you you found some real opportunities to apply the principles that you've developed and and kind of perfected throughout your career in the United States and starting to apply those to different countries. Um, and I think that's that's interesting because as I've worked uh, on a global scale, I've found that applying some of the basic principles that I use in running my U.S. businesses has enabled me to enter different marketplaces um, with some level of ease because. Sure. They're just not looking at things from the same perspective because they haven't gone through the same, um, you know, experiences. Uh, I think is probably the best way to put it. Right now, one of the things that we talked about as we were kind of planning for this call was, you know, the use of mobile money in Africa. And this is where I see a, a really interesting kind of reversal. Right, like in the United States, you're able, you're you're applying U.S. business principles to you know to to another marketplace right to to the african marketplace mm-hmm. but at the same time observing the african marketplace in terms of mobile money and its use of non-hard currency right like these digital currencies and I'm, is that giving you you know some insights into things that may work in the united states in the future as that type of mobile money has become more heavily adopted well I, you know 
as we have said before, one thing people have to understand is Africa is a continent with 54 countries. And within those 54 countries, you probably have 35 distinct personalities in those countries. I mean, we have Saharan Africa up north with Cairo, Egypt, Libya. Then we have Sub-Saharan. Then we have South Africa. We have West Africa where you have, you know, Libya, Liberia, Nigeria, which is totally different than where I'm at in the EAC, the East African countries, where we have Somalia, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Tanzania, Rwanda. In the EAC, mobile money is king. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you go into a place in um, Kenya or Uganda where we do a lot of work at, and if, if you don't have, in Uganda, it's called Momo, mobile money, and Kenyans call M-Pesa. If you don't have an M-Pesa account, people are very, very hesitant about taking cash. Mm-hmm. I mean, they much rather go with mobile money. So, I mean, the, the one thing we do as what I've learned to do, as in the U.S., when I would put cash in my wallet, and when I'm over here is to make sure that my mobile money programs have funds loaded onto them because that's the quickest, most expedient way. And and that is, I would easily say about 90% of the transactions in the EAC are done on mobile money. The other 10% of the transactions that aren't, they are done with smaller roadside vendors of which we have a lot in both Kenya and Uganda where someone doesn't have a bank account and is really dependent on hard currency um, just to eat from day to day. So mobile money is king. So do you find in in the African countries that banking, there's a a smaller underbanked um, population, right? So in the United States, we we're always talking about the banking population and what is possible, you know, are are you seeing a a smaller underbanked or or non-banked population? It's the complete opposite. Um, You're seeing a larger um, underbanked population. Um, I will give you an example Um, in Uganda. Okay. When um, we go to Uganda, you have two major cities. Um, You have Kampala, which is the capital, and you have Barara, which is the second largest city um, in Uganda, but it's in the Southwest corridor close to the Democratic Republic of Congo and Tanzania. Well, I mean, between those two cities and its considerable distance, um, it's easily a four and a half, five hour car ride between Kampala and Barara. And a lot of that is not just distance, it's because of poor roads. But in between, you have nothing but um, private business people who basically are are roadside vendors. And it's remarkable because they're out there every day. But these are the cash people. The the bank people are either the large landowners in the country or people that are sitting in in those two cities. Now. It's the same thing in in Kenya. You have Nairobi, which is the capital, and then your next largest metropolitan areas are on the Indian Ocean, Um, Mombasa, Malini. um, And Mombasa is where 
um, the cargo ships come in. So in, in those areas on the East Coast, banks are everywhere. But the, the amazing thing is this. For the majority of both countries, commercial banks are only for big businesses. The majority of, of people that have any type of banking services, those banking services are done through SACOs. And a SACO is basically an East African version of a credit union. Okay. And that's where they go to get land loans, to do their savings, to get educational loans to some degree, to pay tuition. Uh, a big mode of transportation in the EAC is called a, a Boda Boda, which is basically a motorbike okay. um, that is, again, a main source of transportation. So one of the things the SACOs do are grant Boda Boda loans for these young entrepreneurs to, to, to get a loan, get a bike, and try to make money. So, you know, we have some very large banks over here, of course, in the capitals, in both Nairobi and Kampala, and we have them in the outer cities. But the main banking mechanism is your local SACO. And when I say local, they are all local. Okay. So the, these these have not started to consolidate at any point in time. Like they're not they're not acquiring each other. You don't have as active as a um, the business of banking, as we say, right? No, I mean just just think of it this way: if, if you live in any community um, in the United States, like my home was just north of Dallas, um, if I would drive a three mile radius, I would run into fifteen credit unions. Um, it's the same thing with Sacos. Um, in Barar, where one of my clients, Millennium Saco, was at, and it's one of the biggest ones, there are, I think, the last count, 100 Sacos in the Barara district. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody has, has a Saco. And like credit unions, these things are formed um, by a core group of people who have a common vision, whether it's through church or their farmers mm -hmm. or their herdsmen or whatever. They will basically form a collective to lend money to each other. Fair enough. And I mean, I guess that is kind of the birth of banking overall, right? Like if we want to go historic Absolutely. history of money, which is honestly one of my favorite topics. I used to love teaching that class, um, you know, talking about paper money and, and the reason for paper <laughs> money versus gold coins and you know, talking about the Roman history and all that. But we won't we won't go down that path today, although I feel I can <laughs> no, feel a video coming on specifically about the history. My favorite <laughs> class in all of college was money banking and monetary policy looking at that evolution of money, what it actually is, not necessarily what it could buy or how much of it can I get, but like, how does that actually function? And what are the purposes? I was actually blessed enough, Joe, this will make you laugh. Um, one of my college professors was the man who actually invented the gold card for Amex. He was the marketing okay. guy behind the actual gold card, sold that a whole idea to American Express. And obviously things have continued on from there, but he was also sure. involved at Diners Club, which was the first credit card in New York and the whole idea of charge accounts. But I, mm -hmm. I digress. Um, so yeah. I know that you've been looking at some some interesting Americanized, we'll call them opportunities in Africa as well, including like maybe looking at purchasing debt or, or taking some mm -hmm. different approaches and applying your knowledge from the United States to Africa. I'll kind of leave you with that, you know, that last question. What does that marketplace look like? Is that still a viable business opportunity? I sure it is. Um, but like anything else, you know, you know, I like to approach things strategically. 
And while there is loads of opportunity, I have to make sure I understand the ins and outs of once I purchase this debt, how am I going to have a return on my investment? Um, for example, as I do a pricing, as you well know, uh, you know, you got to figure out the present cost of money and then extrapolate that over a period of time. Mm. So here in the EAC, collections is a little different. It kind of starts with you do a soft hello. And then if that goes no place, you have to go to court. You have to go to a magistrate and get an order from a magistrate to pursue even further collections. So mm. that in itself just kind of helps me with the pricing of it. Um, but I mean, debt purchasing is one thing. I mean, what we're looking to do is, uh, as I'm telling my clients and I'm telling everybody listening to this podcast, you know, whenever we look at doing a BPO operation, we look at the same places that I looked at when I was with the bank, the Philippines, Mexico, Indian, whatever. Mm-hmm. You have a place over here in the EAC where you have highly educated, excellent English speaking people that work very inexpensively that the European market has been using for call centers and BPO forever in a day. That's an opportunity that's here. And that's another thing that we're doing. We're, we're building, in addition to an internal collections operation, um, building a BPO so that um, our friends in the U.S. that are looking for an alternative to the ever-increasingly expensive Indias, uh, Caribbeans, Mexico. I remember when we opened the first call center with the Alliance One in Montego Bay, with Greg Cap, I mean, we were the only game in town, yeah. and it was inexpensive. Yeah, go down there now, and you might as well be in any big city in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is only twenty years ago. So, what we're doing is is that there are a lot of incentives over here for the government to bring business here. It's a stable political environment, and, and what I'm doing is working with those people just to see if we can get something going over here that will benefit not only our current and prospective customers in the EAC and also in South Africa, but our our current and prospective customers over in the U.S. and Canada. Well, Joe, it sounds like you've got a another blue sky opportunity. Somehow you always seem to identify where new opportunities are going <laughs> to emerge a decade before the rest of us see it. So I look forward to, I've actually got um, a trip to Nairobi on my calendar for 2023 and hoping that we'll get to spend some time together because it's been too long since we've been able to share a dinner. Um, I know I'm looking forward to it, my friend. That'll it's definitely on my list of things to do while I'm there. So I greatly appreciate you taking the time to come on and chat with me today to educate our audience on what's going on in the East African market. And really just to give us an update on all the great things that Joe Adams is working on these days, because you're somebody that I've followed closely throughout my career. I appreciate your mentorship and your partnerships throughout the years, because it has been an absolute pleasure to work with you. I learned something from every conversation. The same here, Adam, and I I will tell everybody I am truly blessed and highly favored. So 
Absolutely. So for those of you that are watching, if you have additional questions that you'd like to ask Joe or I, you can leave those in the comments below. We'll both be responding to questions on LinkedIn and YouTube. If you have additional topics that you'd like to see us cover or additional information or videos you'd like to see us create, I'm sure Joe would be more than happy to come back on again and continue creating great content for a great industry. Joe, thank you again for coming on and everybody will see you again soon. Thanks, Adam.